remembrances. With the very small companies, it was easy to set up because they had uh, what was known as a fit-up frame, which was uh, four uprights and four cross pieces joining them. And um, they were bolted together. This frame was bolted and it was lashed off to the walls or floor or any convenient place that hold it uh, steady, rigid. And uh, your cloths and uh, tabs were suspended uh, from now hung from th this frame. Um, all the cloths were uh, roll cloths, and usually they were uh, painted on both sides so that you could um, reverse them and uh, use them in, in another show. That was Bill Hay. He toured in the last days of the fit-up companies. The fit-ups was the term for those legendary theatrical groups that travelled through Ireland from the early years of the century. As a young Trinity student, Peter Dix took to the road with one of those companies and he discovered it could be an alarming experience. At that time, there were about 52 of what we might call the real fit-ups. There were sort of bands of gypsies that ran around and did potted melodrama and variety. Uh, the whole thing concluded by a laughable sketch, it was called. <laughs> With laughable meant to be in the sense that it would amuse you, but of course it was laughable in the ridiculous sense as well. And uh, I joined one of these. I can't remember his name, but I turned up in Kinnegad, of all places, <laughs> you see, I still had to join him. a man called Fred, and uh, I was a very keen young actor at the time, you see, and I thought I was landing myself in a lovely company, you see, and this terribly tough Dublin man called Fred said, Roy, Roy, he says, there you are now, right, you're on tonight, there's your part, and he gave me a child's copybook with the part written out in pencil. And the most crude sort of, it was merely plot with a stock character in it, he, he's got it. Now he says it's all that, and he says it's blah, 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 whatever you can think of yourself, you see. <laughs> and he says it's a very good play, he says it's called Simon Lee or the Blacksmith's Curse. And I said, what about rehearsal? And he says, what the hell do you want rehearsal for? <laughs> Well, he says, uh, uh, well, you, do you know the play? No, I says, I've never heard of it. Well, I said, what the hell do you want a rehearsal for? He says, you just turn up tonight, he says. You can go and sleep for the afternoon, turn up and do this. So anyway, I turned up about this man who'd murdered his wife, and he was in jail, you see. And uh, I'd roughly learnt this thing, and then I'd lived whatever I could think of. And then to my horror, he turned up, this Fred, during one of the interval, and he said, uh, there was only another, there was Fred, myself, and another man in the company, and this fellow was called Jim Bond, and he said, Fred said to me, now Peter, he says, you know when you're in the prison cell, he says, just ad-lib there for 20 minutes, because Jim and I are going down to the pub. <laughs> I couldn't believe this, you see. So there I was in the prison cell, you see. It didn't look like a prison cell. It was a kitchen chair that I sat on with a spotlight overhead. And there I had to tell them about how, how I came to that, you see. And I kept it up for 20 minutes, culling from every play you can imagine that I ever heard of, you see. And I ran this monologue for 10, 20 minutes. The end of that 20 minutes, the two boys came back from the pub and this John Bond ran onto the stage and threw me to the ground and started wrestling. 
By this time, I was so befogged, I am bemused in what was happening. But anyway, I wrestled with him on the stage, and I remember the classic line. I whispered in his ear, do I kill you or do you kill me? <laughs> and he said, shut up and keep it up, because Fred is going to come on and kill both of us. <laughs> Which he did with a sort of wooden gun and a shot stick off stage and went back. <laughs> I was never so happy to die in my life. <laughs> Not many companies were as basic as that, though Dan Treston has his own strange experience. I joined a company called Uncle Joe's Dramatic and Variety Company, the pick of Irish and American talent. consisted of himself, his wife, three daughters and about three little boys. And uh, the women had to play men's parts, putting hats on, moustaches, and very often I had to... The very first night I joined the company, they said, would you go on tonight? I said, what is the play? They said... The Rose of Tralee. Oh, I said, don't know it. Oh, I said, you play Josiah Scraggs, the Mexican. <laughs> so anyway, I th- had no idea of what the, the plays were just done in such a way in the fit-ups that you made up the lines as you went along. For instance, Kitty, that was the eldest daughter, she was very nice. She'd say to me, I'd say, no, she, she knew all the plays off everyone's parts. So she'd say, da 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 to which I do not wish to say any more. To which you'll have to answer, very well, I shall sell the house. Everything is finished. If you go on and on like that, sometimes I'd have to murder myself. I'd go off one side and come back with a moustache on. It was very good fun, though, but uh, the very first night, anyway, I couldn't play Josiah Scruggs because I'd no idea. I just told the plot, and you made it up as you went along. Seamus Ford joined the famous Carrickford Company, and that was in reply to an advertisement in a newspaper... We travelled by lorry, um, commercial lorry you, you get in the, in the town because they were allowed petrol at that time. We packed the lorry ourselves, around about oh, half seven to eight, and depending on the journey we had to go in the morning. We might, we might travel 20 miles, 10 miles, 15 miles, maybe 30, maybe somewhere 50 miles to our next state. Then we unloaded the lorry and um, went off to get these. Now, we were pretty well starving by that time, you know. Um, I remember Nick was a very nice man, a very good boss. We always hear he had the ritual of as soon as we had unloaded the lorry, we'd be covered in dust and mud and grime because the ladies in the company got the inside of the lorry and there was a great art in packing the lorry in as much as it became like a living room. We also, by the way, carried, most illegally, two barrels of paraffin oil for the towns, small towns or villages that at that time had no electricity. Now, we only used the lamps Ordinary um, uh, small lamps you'd see hanging up. We'd about a, about a dozen of those that we nailed onto the stage for footlights, and um, we had larger lamps then for for what we call the, the floods. But it was paraffin. I remember we only played it once. Uh, I can't remember what the town was or where it was, but we carried those two enormous. Getting them on the on the lorry was an, an awful business. But however, it was a great art in packing the lorry in there, because that was Nick's, Nick, Nick did that. We brought the stuff out to him, and he might have, myself, I wasn't much good at it, or some, some other member of the company would help him again in putting them to his specifications on the lorry. With the result, he had a quite a comfortable little, and the chairs, a few chairs, chairs and small, so tie arm chairs that we had, the ladies could sit on those, but we men had to sit out the back, because in summer, you got all the dust and the dirt, cold and winter, you got maybe the mud and the rain, or anything, by the time you arrived, and we take the thing pretty well dead, you know. But Nick always went into the nearest pub, uh, the best pub that was for customers and so on, and we had 
a half and half. There was a half a pint of plain porter and a half a pint of uh, a bottle of stout mixed, you know. And I never enjoyed a drink as much as I enjoyed that. Well, I wasn't a, never was a pint drinker, but I certainly enjoyed that. The very first night I arrived, I had to go on, on the variety um, part of it. Um, I went on and sang uh, the um, vo- uh, Hiking Serenade in a, in a vocal um, Starlight Serenade, it was called, one of the Hikings, uh, and a Scottish song. See, we had the drama and variety. It started off with uh, the variety, sort of a little opening chorus, and then um, Nick was. Uh, dressed up as a sort of the, the comic and he did a comic turn. One of the last reserves, there was a great number of his thumbs. But that man whose name I can't remember, a Dublin man. Anna Manahan joined one of the last of the touring companies in her first professional days, the Equity Company. She too travelled by lorry and she found the halls could be less than luxurious. Yes, sometimes, sometimes depended, you know. Sometimes we had to actually, that's where the fit-up thing came in. We we toured all our own uh, tabs, you know, the front draw, the curtains, the lights, our set, everything. And we would have to set up all that. one time we had to build even the stage. The very odd time we had to sleep in the hall because we couldn't find any digs. And we um, we toured on a lorry. We built up this lorry with the flats, the scenery, and the skips, the big baskets, and put seats along the back. And we'd travel maybe 100, 150 miles in a day to the next stage. Sometimes you'd hit a small village and you'd wonder where everybody was going to come from. But they came over the fields, they came from everywhere. And they were wonderful because the audiences were truly wonderful. They didn't need all the visual aids that people seem to need today. They could people the stage with their imagination. With If you said it was a forest, they could imagine that. And your master said the same in his day, the wonderful imagination of the people in Ireland. Barry Casson was also a member of that equity company. Well, the first thing you did when you got into the town was unload the lorry. It must be understood that there was no such thing at that time as travelling stagehands or travelling stage staff. Everybody who was an actor did something else. And everybody, but everybody, all men, um, unloaded the lorry and brought the scenery into the hall. Now, when that was going on, the girls in the company would do a scout around the town for digs. And when the truck was unloaded, digs may have been arranged, one hoped they were, and uh, you went to an address or other. But very often, digs were not uh, found, and you simply went out, having set up the stage for that night, and you walked around the town knocking on doors. Why did you knock on doors? Because you didn't go to hotels. Because a hotel was for the rich and beautiful and and the famous because I was never inside a hotel when I was a touring actor, except to look in, or maybe somebody whom I knew in the town invited me in for a drink. It, it, different life, different times. 
And um, there were, it was more than one occasion when in fact I didn't get digs. And on one tour that I was on, indeed I believe I was the impresario and manager of that, I slept in the hall on the first couple of nights and was fed by the whole man of food provided and I can remember coming over with a basin of water in the morning to shave and wash and there were about three of us sleeping in the hall wrapped up in the front tabs and the reason for that was that the previous company had left the town without paying <laughs> and that was it well, one, one came about these things regularly as a matter of fact one kept one's eye on who was in the town before you in fact if it were certain companies you hoped that they paid. If it was others, you were quite sure that they had paid. And um, that's, that's, that's the way that was. So we played seven nights a week, except in some towns, by chance, we might have the Saturday free. Uh, at that time, the Saturday night was a great night for uh, country people going to confession, doing shopping and that kind of thing. So we, we didn't do all that well on Saturday night. We had uh, a raffle. Um, for, oh, something like 10 bob or a pound or 10 bob. And then Mrs. Carrickford had what she called the Great Universal Stores. Now, lots of things were in short supply in those days, sugar and so on. And on our travels, we'd pick up the odd pound of tea. And uh, they were hidden away from the company in case because it was enough business trying to get a good, decent cup of tea in those days. One lived on that awful uh, bottled coffee, coffee, chicory coffee and that. Um, so the uh, the great universal stores was a kind of um, mostly for the kids or the younger people that the girl who had a hole in her stocking and would show it to the audience she might get a pound of sugar you see or something as a the fellow who could sing Galway Bay I showed you now how popular Galway Bay was the fellow who could sing Galway Bay or Moonlight in Mayo <laughs> the west of the country the west of the channel had all the popular songs at that time. Um, if you could sing the whole thing through, word perfect, he'd, he'd get uh, maybe a um, uh, half pound of tea or something like that, you know. So, um, or little trinkets, and that was the great Universal Stores. So when the play was over, we had we had the raffle and the great Universal Stores, and we ended up at about one or two in the morning, Mark. It was remarkable. Shows didn't start until half nine or ten. Um, and we had a comedy sketch, and that was the end of the show until the following night. We hoped for the best. Even in the 1940s, Bill Hay found that conditions could be primitive for the touring company. The accommodation in, in some of the halls was very bad. Um, some of them had no stages. You had to build up the stage on planks, on beer crates or barrels or something like that. And I remember one hall that was just a, really a store at the back of a shop, and the people who owned it um, used to uh, come in from the back of the shop. They had a little sort of balcony at the back. We used to call it the Royal Box. <laughs> so he just walked in from the upper story of his house and in, and he used to watch the shows from there. And uh, many of them lacked uh, proper dressing room facilities, and you were um, lucky even to, uh, in some of them to get one big room, you know, that you could divide off so that men could dress in one place and women in another. And in many of the small places in the 50s and earlier, there was no electric light, so you, the shows were lit by tilly lamps or um, paraffin lamps. So the halls had problems, and then you had to find digs. 
Unlike England, Ireland had no great tradition of theatrical landladies. Not in the sense that there would have been in the most famous place in Dublin, Pierce Square, or uh, during the war in the north when I toured with uh, Ensa and that. No, there would be houses in the town that were digs. Now, those uh, houses would have been, uh, at least uh, touring companies, any touring company that came to the town would end up in those. But a lot of the time, one went into the uh, corporation buildings, and you knocked on a door, and you made a deal with a lady, and you said, uh, will you keep me for the week and I will pay you so much? Or will you give me the room and I will feed myself if you give yourself, give me the use of the kitchen? And in that case, uh, a couple of the lads and a couple of the girls tried to get together. You always try to get a couple of women there to cook for you if for no other comfort. <laughs> and um, that's the way it, it worked. I still, I still, when I'm driving to Cork, when I'm leaving the town of Cashel, as I go up the hill, I look on the right and look at the house that I stayed in, oh God knows how many, 40 years ago or so. And I remember it very clearly for a number of reasons. Uh, myself and a couple of the other lads took a room in the house. And there was absolutely no furniture in this room because the people were so poor. And we brought the beds that we used in the far off hills. We carried them down and we used those to stay in. And we cooked on the range in the kitchen. I think we paid out a five or ten bob a week each for this privilege. And uh, the people who took us in, they needed the money. The exciting thing about it was that the people weren't interested in Dublin companies in those days. The stars were really the touring companies. And I was amazed yeah, in my first few months. I didn't know many of the other touring people. and. I was thought of as very ignorant. I didn't know anything by the townspeople or villagers because their big stars were the touring companies. And uh, it remains most vividly in my mind of all the, you know, among some of the, the great memories of my life was the, I toured for a year and then I did six months rep in the north of Ireland with them. I've had some really hairy stories too of places I stayed. I mean, Ireland, that was um, like round the end of 45 into 46, 47. Uh, it wasn't like it is today. Uh, the, the, in the countryside, there were, people weren't as well off. And sometimes we had to stay in places. that You had um, catering digs where you'd pay uh, for the use of the place and you cooked your own food. But you always made your deal. I was told that you had to make your deal before you put your foot inside the house. And in one place, I won't mention the county because they're lovely people, it's nothing to do with them, but I was staying in this place out the road and they were very nice to me. But when I went to leave, they wouldn't let me out of the house, they demanded more money. So I was in a sense kidnapped. <laughs> and it was Barry Casson who saved me because I'm always very um, punctual. And he wondered why I hadn't arrived down at the hall. So he went out looking for me and found that I was locked in the house. And, and I wouldn't give them more money. That was that spirit in me, which is Irish, I suppose. I wouldn't pay them more. So that's not what I agreed to pay you. So I have a million sort of stories like that that are quite funny. The location for a company was important. There wasn't much point in touring too close to Dublin. The west of Ireland was a favourite. 
John McKelvey, who had been stage manager with Anu McMaster, formed his own touring company. I think my most favourite uh, place uh, that I played uh, in Ireland was Achill Island. We played uh, a little shed, it was like, almost like a cow shed in Kiel, but we were right by the, a lovely hotel called the Amethyst, and uh, we stayed at the hotel, we used to do our show, we'd go in at nine o'clock, the old man would say, well, they should be coming in now, and believe it or not, we started the performance every night at midnight. Uh, so we worked from midnight till two o'clock, and then and then until uh, and then uh, had a few jars for the uh, rest of the night, sort of thing, and went to bed about six. It was, what? It was quite the nearest to uh, the nearest to Dublin that we that I that I was on uh, would have been say Tills Pass, County Westmeath. That, that was the nearest. But then when I left uh, sometime in November, that I didn't stay very long. It was about three or four months, and. Um, they they played Nace so in Newbridge because Nick asked me could I come down to play take over a few parts playing uh, Sunday nights which I wasn't unfortunately able to do and um, I was nearest at that time and uh, Nick liked to be near the border because he said it was great for getting supplies and also there were border millionaires there and uh, people didn't mind very often putting down oh you see uh, fiver which was uh, put down for maybe two one and so many seats and one and six many seats and that, uh, Lots, lots of turf millionaires at that time, we saw them, around the, the Swanland bars and Balanyas uh, and uh, places like that. Uh, um, and they always said Donegal, according to Nick, and all the other touring actors was the best place, the loveliest people, the loveliest place to, to work in. And they used to go to Torrey Island, Torrey Island, where Francesa Condoon told me years ago should be pronounced Torrey Island. And sometimes they would stay there for two or three months. And uh, put on all sorts of shows. When they ran out of plays, they'd make up their own plays. <coughs> Mrs. Carrick would actually did write plays. She got, got out and wrote digests of detective stories and so on, you know, <coughs> which she'd read and dramatised them and so on, in uh, an ordinary little school jotting, jot a book. And you, you got just your line, your la the last line for your cue. <laughs> So really a mystery play, you know, that's what one didn't know oneself who the murderer was. <laughs> I did uh, most of my touring with that particular company in the south and around uh, Munster and possibly up into, towards Connaught. Leinster was avoided at that time, the dull, dreary towns near Dublin we always thought of. We kept rather clear of those. One thought in terms of Munster, one thought of the West at that time. There was hardly any competition. And if you booked into the local cinema, there was no competition. There was no television, there was no pop. One has to say all these things now, particularly to get an impression of the type of life that was led at the time. So you came into a town and the touring company was an event in the town, and more or less everybody went. We travelled to um, every part of Ireland, um, I've been all over Ireland, I, I can't think of any part that I haven't been, um, all along the west and south and midlands and north. There was a, a great um, interest in, in the shows then because people didn't get about much in, in those days. There were far fewer cars and uh, so there's a great audience, even in places that look sparsely populated. It was surprising the numbers that would turn up for a show at night. 
If you visit the City Hall in Dublin and ask to see the theatre archives, the archivist Mary Clark will show you a very large scrapbook. This was compiled in the course of over half a century by the late Charles Carey, himself a member of one of those travelling companies. Carey was something like uh, Zelig in the Woody Allen film of that name. He was the hidden man who popped up everywhere in history. Uh, backstage, very observant, noted everything, and more importantly, from our point of view, he documented everything. He had collected this most marvellous scrapbook in which he pasted every single play, uh, poster, programme, whatever, uh, in which he appeared. And he also wrote his own songs, his own pantomimes, and he carefully pasted in the scripts and texts of these, music and everything and kept it carefully throughout his life. So it forms a most marvellous record, not only of his own career, but of the career of very many important people with whom he was associated. One of the playbills in the Carey collection dates from 1925. It's for a season at the Coliseum in Cove. The leading actor is Martin Doran, or so he was billed. Martin Doran was actually the real name of Anya McMaster, and uh, there's a very nice programme here for the Theatre Waterford for 1925, in which he's billed, Martin Doran is billed, for a farewell performance as Iago in Othello of the Moor of Venice. <laughs> so as we all know, he went on as Anya McMaster to make that one of his most famous and more, more interesting roles. It's probably one of those he's most closely associated with. So, you know, it's, as, a, as a farewell performance, it really is very early. But, but his, his name on this poster here is in, in very large letters indeed, isn't it? Yes, and in brackets then, Mr. Anya McMaster, it says that he was the leading man with Oscar Ashe and with Gladys Cooper in, in London and um, he's now arrived in Ireland to make his name. Anya McMaster was the big star of the Irish touring companies. The rest of them trailed in the wake of his stardom. The playwright Seamus Burke has his own story about McMaster. Well, no, the story I have about him is that he was a star in London in 1921, and he, he, was, he played in, in uh, Paddy the Next Best Thing, but the next thing uh, you dis uh, we discover that he's he's touring in the Shakespeare Company, and he's calling himself uh, uh, Martin Doran. Now, we Charles Doran was a famous man who used to come to the Gaiety every year, and he brought about seven plays, seven Shakespeare plays, and we all went to them, of course. <coughs> but I think that that's just that uh, McMaster. He was probably trying to call the people that he was Charles Dorn. But I can tell you he's as good an actor as ever Charles Dorn was because when he appeared in the Abbey in 1927, I saw four of the plays and seven of the seven, they had seven plays rehearsed and seven plays were produced in two weeks. And I, I remember talking to Chris, Lady Christine Longford about <coughs> Max's first appearance here and I always said it was 1929 and she said to me Seamus she said it wasn't 1929 it was 1927 because she says Edward and I were on our honeymoon and we saw every performance so it's one way to play your, have your honeymoon but I can tell you she, I, I know that, that McMaster McLeomore was there, but his name was Wilmore, as you, you may have known that. And and in, in Joe Holloway's diaries, he's called Wilmore at that time. But of course, now he's a very fine actor. But I don't, I've no recollection at all of either Wilmore or Mac Lemaster, but I do remember Hilton uh, as the king. 
but I didn't know who, I didn't even know his name. But the only pe the other star I remember was Le was Esme Biddle. Now Esme Biddle, she was described on the on the poster, and but outside the Abbey. And by the way, it was the only poster that was any man mentioned, and that was a new McMaster and Esme Biddle, his leading lady, direct from their recent uh, tour in the Stratford and Avon Festival Theatre. After his early experiences with a fit-up company run by an actor who called himself Uncle Joe, Dan Treston joined McMaster's company. Well, first of all, we did, we did Othello, we did Oedipus, and we did do occasional one. We did one, some, one or two, the, the Speckled Band, uh, and he also did The Bells. And on the very first night I joined the company, Max Company, Again, they hadn't. I mean, they weren't very well provided with clear scripts. When Mac died, I didn't know. I thought I, my cue was to pull the curtain down. When he died, I didn't know that Mac used to die about five times. He'd die, go up stage, come down stage, die. I pulled the curtain. I was nearly sacked on the very first night because I just took it. He dropped dead. But <laughs> it was after a while I knew how long to train these things. They had some very good people in that. Time, but I know he was extremely nice to work with, and his main interest in the whole. He, I remember we played a David Garrick. His last line, this was one night uh, on David Garrick. I'll go down to Drury Lane Theatre and I'll pull it down around his ears. It was the last thing I did. He walked off stage and pulled a rope, and the whole back of the stage <laughs> fell down. Mac didn't mind. All he did was go forward to make sure the spots were in the right position for his next entrance. There was a myriad of lesser companies. Seamus de Burke's father took plays on tour, mostly melodramas with titles such as For the Land She Loved and When Wexford Rose. He, he toured the Opera House Cork, where they put on uh, Lily of Killarney, and my father conducted the orchestra himself. And also they put they produced uh, the Chakron and uh, Corton was the Lord Mayor at the time and Corton supplied them with uh, the, the girls there from the Cunamon and the young, I suppose, volunteer young men or men that were inclined for the, the, the super, supernumerary parts and they were all played at the end of the week which was a great uh, surprise to them. Of course, my father would have had to pay them. He also toured in Galway. I don't know what he played in Galway, but he <clears throat> as a young man, he play, he brought uh, O'Mangan's T. S. O'Mangan's uh, Robert Emmett to uh, Barton Dart. But Barton Dart was his more or less his hometown, and I remember talking to a man named Doyle up the hill there. And he was dying at the time, and he said he remembered them uh, bring, bringing the play there. And he said that the, uh, the whole countryside and came and asked in carts and bikes and everything. And he said, that, I have seen, he says, Robert Amos played 20 times, but he said nobody ever played it like PJ Potbuck, we call him. Seamus de Burke also remembers the William Dobell Company and the actor Jack Coonan. Jack Coonan was a, um, uh, a Dublin man, as far as I know, and he ran away to a circus when he was 13. 
and he arrived back in Dublin. I, he had played with my father many times, but he arrived back with my, when the Bucks, Buck and Wild uh, Company took over at, uh, in February 1928. And uh, he became the pu publicity manager, and he used to talk to me about, he was a first-class actor, by the way. He played in, in East Lynn, I remember. And one night I was supposed to go on and ask him, but I didn't anyway, but <laughs> I would have been only imitating him anyway. But he was a most marvellous man. He, he, he used to tell me that he carried his, his whole makeup in his in, 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 uh, 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 matchbox, which of course was a slight exaggeration. In the City Hall's theatre archives, you'll find posters in Charles Carey's scrapbook from the Dobell Company. This is the William Dobell Company here, and this is a fabulous poster because it actually includes a photograph of the performance of The Ghost Train by Arnold Ridley for the first time in the Irish provinces. Um, the action of the play takes place in a small general waiting room at Fall Vale, a wayside station on the South Cornwall Joint Railway. So we were left to wonder what happened exactly. How many days did they play in these centres? Well, this was uh, at the Town Hall Trim for five nights, commencing Thursday, December the 9th, and that's probably 1927. I think we're into the next year here. So the best part of the week was that's taken right. up in each town. Yes, and of course they, they put on a, a whole range of productions. It looks as if there was something different every single night. So you could go to the, the theatre for five nights running and see, see something else. They move on, I see, by the programmes, to the Opera House Derry. That's right, and the Empire Theatre in Galway. Quite a, a beautiful poster there showing a delicate scene, a lute player serenading his lady. And what were they doing there at the ghost train? Yes, ghost train again. Jack Coogan told, I remember I went, went to see, during, during that year, 1928, I went to see the ghost train, Arlen Ridley, which was a big success in London. and. Uh, I remember uh, there, was, there was one scene, where, where, or more, more than one scene, where, where, where the, the train was to go to go, go to the station, you see. But uh, Jack Coonan said that, that he saw it in the gaiety, but he said that the Dobell Company put on as good a show as ever was put on in the gaiety. Alongside the theatrical companies were the touring variety companies. Once again, Charles Carey turned up in one of their programmes. He pops up again here with Roberto Lina and his new Cosmo players. And once again, we have Charles Carey prominent. This seems to be more of a artists and uh, perhaps... A, a variety programme. variety programme, yes. Baby Fitzpatrick, Ireland's number one child entertainer, late of Rowan and Getty Theatre, Stockholm. And this very purple-looking poster here, where would that be from? Is that yet another company? People's Popular Players... That's right. Many of these posters and programmes actually in the, the uh, scrapbook are on quite sure unique because you can see how what thin paper they're printed on. Very, very fragile. Unless they were carefully preserved like this by somebody, they certainly wouldn't have survived. There's a bridge below the town I have you all to know It's broken and it's tumbling to the ground but it's there we used to gather every evening long ago, sitting on the bridge below the town. Among the variety companies was Franco Donovan's, and that was his song, sung there by a latter-day performer, Larry Cunningham. Bill Hay remembers O'Donovan. He was a, a variety man again, and he was... Um, it, although he had uh, a lot of little plays, he'd started off originally as, as an actor, strangely enough, in... in uh, 
stuff companies in England and um, then branched out in, into variety and he used to write a lot of his own material in, including little short little playlets and of course his, his own songs and uh, his own sketches. Um, he was uh, very popular. Was he very much a one-man show, or had he got oh, a, a no, company? Oh, no, no, he used to have a company. Um, and some of the um, acts who were quite popular in, in Dublin, like Silvio, the, the harpist, and, and these uh, worked with, with Frank. And um, Paul Golden, uh, the hypnotist, he originally came over and, and, and worked with, with Frank. Well, well, they worked as uh, sort of partners, but it was Frank who brought him to Ireland originally. Probably the most colourful of the variety companies was the company run by Vic Loving. The daughter of circus people, she'd grown up with Gracie Fields in Lancashire and together they'd gone busking as children outside local working men's clubs. Vic Loving and her husband Peter Piper came to Ireland with a touring variety company and they stayed. Vicky Jackson, her granddaughter, remembers Vic and the company. It was the biggest in the, the country. And not, not, all, not only that, but she... Um, she did more than anybody else, whereas a lot of the shows that were smaller did only um, variety or drama. Um, she did everything. Um, variety, drama, reviews, pantos, everything. Um, she had the biggest touring show. Um, she had chorus girls plus actors and actresses, singers and orchestra, the whole thing. That was in her heyday, as it were, at that time. So, uh, And she went all over the country, everywhere, you know. She came over originally, uh, brought over a dance troupe uh, to join a, another company. And then she uh, set up on her own, her own company. And she called it Flash Parade. And it was a very glamorous uh, show. And she had a chorus of girls. And uh, she used to make all her own costumes. And um, there were really lovely shows to watch. And uh, every time the girls came on, or anybody came on, they would... Uh, new outfit and uh, it was a great splash of colour in the country in those days because there, were, um, there was very little uh, entertainment outside uh, the travelling companies. In the smaller towns they had no cinemas and they used to get, just like the touring theatre shows, uh, there were touring uh, uh, cinemas. People used to come around showing films once a week. And so the shows were a great touch of colour and glamour uh, in the country. She had an entertaining car uh, caravan and her own living quarters. Um, her entertaining caravan was totally white, everything in it was white, carpet, walls, seating, sort of satin damask seating, um, fine bone chinaware, all this sort of thing. <laughs> a real uh, uh, upper-class lady. I remember going to uh, different, when I was a, a kid, different um, mansions and castles and things to have tea and with Lord and Lady, this, that and the other thing, you know. My um, my mother, when she was on the show, she celebrated her 21st um, birthday in, in some castle, I, I can't remember, I think it was Castle Connell someplace, some big, huge place. She said it was terrific. It was like something that you'd see in the, the movies in the States, you know. What were the plays these travelling companies brought to Irish audiences? Bill Hay. Things like East Lynn, the White Sister, uh, versions of the Colleen Vaughan and uh, things like that. A uh, lot of the um, uh, melodramas. 
There were people who used to go to the cinema. I knew one woman who used to go to the cinema and see the latest film, and she would write a script of it and sell it to companies for uh, a fiver, I think, at that time. <laughs> and would they put it on? Well, they would, yes. And if they, they didn't like it, of course, they wouldn't put it on, but, or else they'd adapt it themselves. You know? And some of them used to uh, adapt plays quite outrageously, and um, a person would be handed a script and told you were playing uh, such a part. And a man might look at it and say, but uh, there's no part uh, for a man there. Oh, well, it's, I know it's, it's, a, it's a woman's part there, but you have to play it <laughs> as a man. Um, the first part I played was uh, Little Willie in East Lynn, um, following in the grandma uh, grandmother's footsteps of being a male impersonator, <laughs> I suppose I got the part of being Little Willie. <laughs> the thing is, even other companies, if they weren't doing well in a particular place, if they put on East Lynn, they'd clean up. Um, and it was people used to come and they'd they'd watch it over and over and over again. But uh, with the grandmother, I mean, she had a different play, a completely different um, program on every night anyway. But um, East Lynn was one of the old tearjerkers, so it worked very well for you know anybody there. They um, it didn't matter who, how many times you put it on, they'd come and see it anyway. We had a repertoire of seven plays at a time. Uh, you did broken weeks, maybe a three, uh, you know, three three day week, or you possibly in if you went to Cork, you'd do a seven day week. We played anything from Cork City, Waterford, um, etc., to to small little hamlets. You know, uh, we did uh, things that are Caesars, Vincent Carroll, Plough in the Stars, Juno, Drama Dinish, all the sort of uh, you know well known classics of the Irish theatre, and now and again an odd modern English one. By the end of the 40s, the writing was on the wall for the fit-ups. One of the first to read the warning signs was the flamboyant Big Loving. Grandmother, who was uh, very astute at most times, uh, decided because television came in, um, she decided to cop out because there was no way she was going to be able to carry on. Not with the size of her show. Um, she certainly, she just got out of it when the going was good and she made a very wise decision and she was very happy with it because um, I mean she was in her 70s at that stage and I mean she was still on the stage even though she used to do turns and things all over the place um, but uh, she just made this decision which was the right one. It ended because it, in the way that so many things end it ran out of money. Competition became too great. Uh, Cinema was not the end. Television was not the end. Pop concerts and dances were not the end, but they were all contributory factors. People had more attractions, and the touring company ceased to be the only, uh, the event it had been in a town, because it really was an event. All things have their important years, they have their honeymoon, and then they fade and they die. And that's what happened to Turing. It was put out of business by cost. Yet few of those who were a part of that era have any regrets about the time they spent with the fit-ups. Oh, never, never. It has enriched my life. Uh, I wish today that youngsters could have it because 
we learned all branches of the business. I used to work the music, do props, costumes. We did every branch of it. And um, a young uh, stage director said to me recently, you always know the people who have come that way because they have an understanding and respect for stage management that sometimes other people don't have because you've done it all, you see.